Well, we've almost done it. Can you believe it? The Lord has almost blessed us to finish this book, and we didn't even devour each other. <laughs> we didn't eat each other up. We didn't argue with each other. We didn't split as a church. We actually got through it in one piece. And I am thankful to God. I'm thankful to God. You know, even though we didn't all maybe agree on everything that was said, because this is a difficult book and there are different interpretations of things, I thought we got through it pretty good. We were learning together, growing together. We got to the end of it, and, and we're still united. And even at times we had to agree to disagree on some things, that's okay. This is one of those books where you have to do that at times. And, and I'm thankful how, for how mature, spiritually mature, everyone handled this study together. And I think I speak on Mitch's behalf when I say that as well. We're very thankful for the wonderful class you've been as we've been blessed to be able to teach this over the last several months. I hope, and I believe Mitch will say the same thing, we hope that you have benefited from this study. We hope that you've grown during this study, that we've grown together, and hopefully some of the questions you may have had about this book have been answered as we've made our way through this, as we navigated our way through this material. Today, today we're going to start a two-lesson review. Two-lesson review. So we're going to Review today, we're going to go Wednesday, and then next Sunday, Lord willing, I believe Brother Don, you're starting Genesis, right? Genesis chapter 1. So Don is going to start Genesis next Sunday. Over the next two classes, this is what I want to try to accomplish, okay? I want to accomplish three things, so listen carefully. First, and probably what we're going to do in this class mainly today, is I just want to give a brief summary, a brief summary of the 22 chapters we've gone through. Not going to go through verse by verse, going to hit the main thing just to make sure that you have some of the very, very important things in the forefront of your mind as we conclude this, this, this book. Secondly, we're going to talk about some practical application. The first step in studying the Bible is always to get the right interpretation or as good an interpretation as you can get. And then once you get that, then you can have better application. And so we're going to start with the summary, we're going to do the application, and then I want to conclude the last thing I'll do, that's probably going to be Wednesday, is just give you some helpful study tips, some things for you to remember because we're not going to go through this book again probably until at least five years from now, and you're going to, by then you're going to forget a whole lot. And so in addition to the resources we have on the internet for you to go back and look at, I want to give you some just practical study tips for you to use in the next five years if you want to go back and look at this book again and you don't want to do a verse-by-verse -verse study, if you just want to remember some main things, uh, I want to try to give you some, some advice on how you can do that. And so let's go ahead and start. Let's start with Revelation 1 again. I'm going to spend probably the most time here. I'm going to throw these questions up here and I'm going to see if you can answer them now. I want to see if you can remember. You should know this stuff by now. So Revelation, the book Revelation. Notice, not Revelations. But revelation, one revelation, this is a one big revelation. What does revelation mean? To disclose. Someone else? To disclose. What else? To reveal. To, reveal, to uncover. So this is a revelation. We're uncovering something, unveiling something. It ultimately is a revelation of who, according to verse 1. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. This book is all about Jesus. And haven't you seen that? Haven't you seen that now that we've made our way to the end of the journey? It's all about Jesus. This book is all about Jesus. Second question. We already answered that one. It's about Jesus. Thirdly, when would the things from this book take place? Somebody tell me. 
shortly, shortly come to pass. That's what we find over and over again. And God says what he means, and he means what he says. So God, so remember that. And that's an important thing to remember because it'll help you. It'll help you when you start coming across people who are thinking, well, the stuff in Revelation is coming to pass in our time today. The, the reason people say that so often is because they miss this. They miss the time factor. These things have already happened. The, the vast majority of them have already happened. And so remember that. The original audience is who? Seven churches. Seven churches, where are they? They're in Asia. Seven churches. Now, when we say Asia, are we talking about Japan, China? What are we talking about? Turkey. Talking like modern, Asia Minor, modern Turkey today. That's right. That's right. Okay, next question. What kind of style did God want this book written in? Signs and symbols. And, I, and we're not just making that up. The Bible actually says that. It says that in verse 1. This message was, some of your translations use the word, it starts with an S, signified. This is a signified book here, and that is important. Let me ask you this question. The style of this book, whether you want to say symbolic, apocalyptic, whatever language you want to use there, is this, is this style, is the language of this book foreign to other parts of the Bible? Is this some weird language here that God is just using for this book, or is this a language found in other places? It's found throughout the Old Testament. Ezekiel, Isaiah, Daniel, it's all over the place. Let me ask you this question. Is this style foreign from what history tells us about how books were written during this time, this genre? There are all kinds of books written like this. In fact, get you a copy of the Apocrypha. I don't know if you have a copy of the Apocrypha. What is the Apocrypha? Anybody know what the Apocrypha is? When were, those, when, when were those books written? Mostly in between the Testaments. Between the Testaments. The books between the Testaments. I have a copy of the Apocrypha in my library done. You probably have one. Mitch probably has one. Probably all the elders have a copy of that. It's a good, it's a, it's a good book. It's, it's historical, but it's not inspired. It never claims to be inspired, although the Catholics put it in their Bible, uh, at, the, at, the, at, the, at the back of their Bible. Yes, sir. It is. There are many books like that. But I think Bell the Dragon and, and just so many. Probably the best of the historical books of the Apocrypha are the books of the Maccabees. But even those books are written in this kind of style, the signs and symbols kind of style. So, so this is typical language to be used. Another interpretation or another thought that scholars or Bible students, I won't, I won't say scholars there, but I will say Bible students say that maybe this style was also used to do two things, to reveal and conceal. So the message would be revealed to the target audience while concealed from the enemy. So that's, that's another thought that is usually thrown out there. Now, another thing I want to say about this is why, why are these things, these questions here that we're looking at, even this question here, the original audience going through, what are they going through? I want to, let me ask that before I go to this next part. What are they going through at this time? Persecution. John says tribulation, well, Revelation 1-9. What, what kinds of things were the Christians going through at this time? Like, give me some examples. Burning at the stake. Uh, what was that? Lions. What did somebody else say? Oppression, economic oppression. Yes. Yes. 
outcasts in society big time, big time. And so these early Christians are going through things. Let me ask you this, and let's just be fair and honest, okay? Let's be fair and honest. The kind of stuff they were going through, when you compare it to what we're going through, is it the same? Because you get in your house, get in your car, and just drive here without nobody bothering you this morning. Is anybody going to come in here and mess up what we're doing right now? And I'm, talk and I'm just talking about America, Gary. I'm sorry. No, you're right. There are China and many other pla places in Africa. Absolutely. I know brethren going through that. I'm just talking about America. I'm sorry. Thank you for helping me clarify that. In America, do we have to worry about that? Not yet. Not yet. And that's all we can really need to kind of focus on according to what Jesus said. Jesus said worry about what? Today, tomorrow's got enough trouble on its own. So... The only reason I'm saying that is we can't, we don't need to live our lives being paranoid. You know, there are things maybe coming, but today we need to savor the blessings we have. Because what we're going through now, even though it could get bad and it may get bad, it ain't, it ain't this. It ain't even close to this. And there's a reason why I'm saying that. I'll emphasize that more in a second. Go ahead, Brother Gary. Yep. Oh, it's starting. It's starting. And it doesn't look good. And you know what I try to do, Gary? If I sat around and worried about things I can't control, I wouldn't be happy in my life. I'd be depressed all the time. And I don't want to live that way because the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, happiness. God wants, wants us to be happy. And yes, be alert. But can, is worrying going to change anything? Absolutely. And, and all we can really do, you know, what we got to do right now is keep teaching the gospel. When you say that, we got to teach the gospel. That's how we change things. We change things mainly by teaching the gospel. When people's hearts are changed, that will then filter through their actions. And that's, and that's what we got to do. So if we, if we really want to change things as Christians, we got to teach because if they stop teaching just because they were going through this stuff, so if they didn't stop and they were going through this, what does that mean about us? We really shouldn't be stopping. If we got a protected right to teach the Bible, even this morning, we got to do it. And we got to do it fervently and zealously because that's how we change the world. That's how we turn the world upside down is by teaching about Jesus. And that's what we're going to keep doing. All right, one more question here I had. Verse 3, what were they told to do with the message of Revelation? It was two things in verse 3. Tell me what, the, what those two things are. They were supposed to do two things. Keep, yes. What was the other one you said? Yes. So you're supposed to read. Now you thought, Blessed are those who read, those who hear the words of the book. But there's another word. You got to keep it. Mine says heed. So, and I think Mitch may have made a point on this at some point, maybe a couple of classes ago. But that's something that's often missed in Revelation, is there are things in here that are to be kept commandments, instructions. So we, it's not just a book to study and try to figure things out and understand what different things mean. This is also, there's also stuff in here that God wants us to apply and do. There are things in here that ought to be heeded, kept. So always remember that too. That, that's something else that we, that we need to emphasize. 
Now, when it comes to these questions, last thing I want to ask about this, why are they so important? Why is it so important that we get the answers to these questions right? What would y'all say? Explain that more, Ryan. Explain that more to me. Like, what do you what, what do you mean by that? Well, we're trying to remember what Jesus said. Yeah. It's, it's as we go through the book of Revelation, there's differences in symbolism. We can revert back to those to make sure that we understand what he's talking about. You can't start wrong and end right, can you? You can't start off wrong and end up right. If you're gonna if you're gonna end up right with this book, you gotta start right. And so often that's why people that's why this is the most abused book in the Bible, because people start out wrong. They start out and they miss all the things that chapter one says, and then they end up in the weeds. And, and so that's why that's so important. Another thing in chapter one, because we gotta move here. There are names about Jesus given in chapter one. Lots of names, and these are just a few. There, there are many others. But the faithful witness, firstborn from the dead, ruler of the kings of the earth, Alpha and the Omega, Alpha being the first letter of the Greek alphabet, Omega being the last, the beginning and the end, first and last, the living one, the one who has the keys of death and Hades. Death, something we're all going to experience, Hades, the place where the dead go to await the resurrection. Let me ask you this question. If you were a Christian living during this time in the first century and you're going through the things that y'all just talked about, all that stuff, how would these descriptions of Jesus make you feel? If you were in the first century and you're going through all this bad stuff and you read Revelation, the first part of Revelation, and you hear all these things about Jesus, how would that make you feel? Somebody tell me. You're on the right side of of things. Someone else. Hope. I like that. Right side of things, hope. Anyone else? How would you feel if you were a Christian in the first century and you read this stuff, these names about Jesus? Very encouraged. encouraged. That's it, James. I'm, I'm asking you that because I believe that if we put, if we can challenge ourselves when we read this book to first put our, try to put ourselves in the sandals of the first century Christians and what they were going through and how they would have read that, that's really going to help us in our lives. You see, if Jesus is these things and they're getting hope and encouragement from that and they're going through some of the worst things you can go through, how much more should we be encouraged and, and, and just rejuvenated when we read these same things about Jesus and we're going through things far less severe than what they went through? Do you see what I'm saying there? They got encouragement from this, and they were going through the worst of the worst. We really should get encouragement when we read these things about Jesus, even if what y'all say comes to pass and things get as bad as they can be in America. These same things should encourage us because what is true of Jesus then, it's also true today. These terms of Jesus are designed to encourage his people and to let them know that when you're with me, no matter what you go through, you're on the right side. I'm with you. Go ahead, Brother Don. Yes, sir. Those items that you got on the board right there are a reminder of the gospel that they have been taught and the life of Jesus, and especially his death, burial, and resurrection. It's all there. And if he did it and offers it to us, 
You know, in fact, it's interesting how all, most of these things are tied to his resurrection. And I wonder if we don't emphasize that enough as we should. You know, so often we, we spend time you know, talking about so many different things, but we only want to talk about the resurrection a couple of times during the year. When the apostles, when you read Acts, you know what every sermon they preached had in it? We may have missed something along the way. We may have missed something. We may, may not be emphasizing something as much as we should. Revelation 2 through 3. Remember these seven churches. Brother Mitch spent several weeks giving us the lessons about the seven churches. So I'll refer you back to those on the website or on YouTube. I will say that always remember that these are seven local congregations. There are local congregations today. There are local congregations then. These local churches were in Asia Minor. They were self-governing, autonomous. They were made up of ordinary Christians. I want to say that. Remember, even though they're 2,000 years removed from us, these are still ordinary people like me and you. Ordinary Christians going through ordinary problems, going through the same kind of stuff that we're going through. They had marriage issues, problems with their kids, problems with society, problems growing in their faith problems with people in the church. They had the same kind of problems we're going through. And Jesus uses a repetitive device over and over again with these churches. He over and over again tells them, I what? I, starts with an N, I know. I know, I know. I know what's going on in the churches. If he knows what's going on in the churches then, does he know today? Does he know what's going on in Monta Vista? Absolutely. From these chapters here, we see that some of these churches, like churches today, they were doing some good things and they were doing some bad things. And the Lord knew about all of it. He knew about those who were tolerating false teachers. He knew about those who had lost their zeal and their passion for his work. He knew about those who were spiritually asleep and spiritually poor. And he knew about those who were spiritually rich and alive and were persevering and doing exactly what he told them to do. Jesus said he knew what all the churches were doing and some of them needed to repent quickly or he was going to put out their lampstand. And so when you read that section, if you want to make it practical, just understand that those churches are no different than the churches today. Ordinary people who had problems and the Lord knew about what was going on and he gave them remedies for their problems. Revelation 4 and 5. Throne scene, a glimpse behind the curtain. In Revelation 4, we get a vision. John sees what? What does he see in heaven? Make it very simple for me. He sees who in heaven? Give me one person. It's one person he sees. God the Father sitting on his throne, getting worshipped and praised. This is similar to Isaiah 6. Remember Isaiah 6? Isaiah saw a similar thing. But in Revelation 5, not only do we see God the Father on the throne, but we also get introduced to this book with seven seals. And this book with seven seals is a big deal. Why is the book with the seven seals such a big deal? Does anybody remember? Why is it such a big deal? Nobody's worthy to open, but why is it such a big deal that it be open in the first place? Why can't we just leave it closed? Yes, it was about to reveal the outcome to all this stuff going on. 
Is the Lord's church going to persevere and be able to overcome what was going on at this time? And so everybody's crying in heaven, even, you know, John, because nobody can open the book except who? The lamb, the lion, Jesus Christ. And why is Jesus the only one able to open it? He's worthy. He's the only one that's going to be able to fulfill the things that are in the books. He's the only one worthy to lead God's people to victory over their enemies. That was true then, and that's true today. So let me say this in regards to something that, that, that my brothers and sisters were saying about the things that may come in our future. No matter what happens, please remember this, and I want to say this to encourage you. I want to encourage you. We've already won. No matter what happens, no matter how frustrated we get, we already won. You know how we already won? Because we're with Jesus. And what's the point of revelation? Jesus wins. He wins here. He wins today. So I'm with y'all. I worry. Look, I got small children. Okay? Don't think I don't have concerns. But I also have encouragement in the fact that I'm on the right side of the battle. You're on the right side of the battle. We've already won. We've already, remember what Paul said, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but where is our battle? Spiritual things, principalities, powers, the spiritual battle going on. That's the real war that's going on. We've won that war. Satan's already lost. He's just trying to take down as many people as he can along the way. Let's not let him take us down. Revelation 6 and 7, we got the seals being opened. The first, the first six seals are opened. And I'm just going to throw this up here real quick. Remember, the first seal we said represented the gospel going out, conquering the hearts of men. These people were preaching the gospel during tough times. But there's conflict that came with that. And isn't that how it always goes? There's always conflict that follows with the truth because people don't like the truth. They don't like hearing what God has to say about religion and morality. And these Christians were dealing with that, and this led to oppression. And it led to people being killed, Christians being killed, and the martyrs, those who were in Hades, crying from under the altar, God, when are you going to avenge us? And God says, wait, it's going to happen soon. And when the sixth seal is broken, God executes that judgment, the judgment on those who are persecuting his people. Revelation 7 was two parts to that. It was an interlude. So God broke the sixth seal. The sixth seal was just a summary, a summary statement saying, I'm going to vindicate my people. But the question may have come up, with God's people. What's going to happen to us when you execute this judgment on the world? And God's telling them in chapter 7, I'm going to take care of you. Don't worry about it. I can take care of you and also execute judgment at the same time. I know you. I care about you. Remember, he marked his people, the idea of he knows who his people are, and then he promised them rest in heaven when this life is over. That's Revelation 7. Then you get to Revelation 8 through 9. And the seventh seal is broken. Remember the pattern. Whenever you go back and look and study this book again, you'll always remember the pattern with the sevens. The first four are the same. The first four are always similar. The next two are different from one another. And the seventh is always transitional. The seventh seal opens up the seventh trumpets. The seventh trumpet opens up the seventh bowl, seven bowls of wrath. Now, in this case, when it comes to the trumpets, the first four trumpets... The first four trumpets represented God doing natural calamities, affecting the earth in some way. The next two have to do with the pains of sin, 
maybe sending a strong delusion to people who reject the Lord, as Paul talked about. There was also the pain of war, maybe even some say the pain of disease that was affecting the world at this time. It can be hard trying to pinpoint exactly what every one of these trumpets meant, but what was the point of the trumpets? What was God doing, trying to do with these trumpets here? Inspire repentance. Go to Revelation chapter 9. Revelation 9, you may want to, if you don't have these marked, mark these in your Bible, because this is the point of the trumpets. Regardless of, of how you interpret them exactly, this is what they were designed to do, the, the trumpets. Revelation 9.20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands. That's the point. So as to not worship demons and the idols of gold and silver and of brass and of stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murderers, murders or their sorceries, nor of their immorality nor thefts. The trumpets were designed to lead these wicked people even to, to repentance because God even loves them. God wants all people to be saved. And he gave them a chance to repent. And they refused to repent. And so then we go down to the next part here, Revelation 10 through 11, the seven peals of thunder. We don't talk about the seven peals of thunder much because God didn't want them revealed. The seven peals of thunder were going to be more warning judgments that God would have sent and could have sent, but he decided not to. He's like, these people are not going to repent. I'm not going to give them any more time. Time is up. So don't reveal what the seven peals of thunder were. We don't know what in the world they were. All we know is they were going to be some more warning judgments that God decided not to send because he's fed up. And then we have the little book. The little book contained a bittersweet message. John was told to eat the book and then preach the book. Eat it and preach it. Now, the message from the little book, it was going to be a bittersweet message. So what would that mean? Who would it be bitter for? It was going to be bitter for those who didn't repent. Those who refused to repent, the message was, God is going to bring you down. There's bad things awaiting you because you refuse to re repent, ultimately, in the spiritual sense, in the spiritual realm. There was eternal damnation awaiting you. But what's the sweet message? Who was the sweet message for? God's people, the sealed, the marked, us. And the sweet message is we are going to win. It may look like we're losing, but God is going to bring us to victory, and ultimately he will bring us into heaven. Bittersweet. Isn't that the same way it is today? Don't we still preach a bittersweet message? Don't I preach a bittersweet message? A message of, look, if you don't repent and turn to God, there's bad things awaiting you. There's a bad life awaiting you in this life, but more importantly, there's, there's hell waiting for you in the next life. That's bitter. But the sweet thing is I can come to people like you, wonderful people like you, and tell you, hey, heaven's waiting for you. God's grace is good. You may have problems in your life. I may have problems in my life, but God is on our side, and God will get us through anything because of Jesus Christ. It's a bittersweet message. That's what we preach as preachers. That's what we teach as teachers. So that's what you got going on there. One more thing that I give, I give y'all a chance to make a couple of comments if you want to. <laughs> Chapter 11. 
Oh, man. All right. We did a whole class on that. Go back to the video on Revelation 11. If you're visiting with us, we do have all these, these lessons archived on our website, on our YouTube page. So if you want to go back and listen to uh, what we taught on every chapter, you can do that. We got them organized pretty good. One of our deacons, Brian, does a great job with that. So we have that for you. But in Revelation 11, basically what you have here is the story for the rest of the book summarized in one chapter. You know, God's people being accounted for. The church is persecuted. The gospel is preached. The apparent victory of Satan. Apparent. The apparent defeat of God's people. The cause of Christ vindicated and then ultimately the kingdoms of the world become the Lord's. God and his son win. Revelation 11 is a summary of the rest of the book. And I go into detail more on that on the, on the video. Okay, so may, any comments, questions so far? I'll take a couple of minutes and then we'll, then we'll press on. Anything at all? We're doing good so far with time. That's the first half. Brother Gary, go ahead, sir. It's amazing how the last chapter of Revelation is very similar to the first chapter. Uh, it's a lot of the same things, the idea of near and, and things like that, victory, um, all that, even the idea of hearing and keeping. That's in the last chapter, like I said, found in the first chapter. Uh, so it's, it's like God is saying, let me tell you one more time in case you forgot after reading this big book or this big scroll. That, that's a good point. Uh, anyone else? Brother Lance and then Don. Will come to pass. Come to pass. No, that's exactly right. Good point, Lance. Brother Don, yes, sir, then we'll move. When you, when you look at, at the law that Lance alluded to, twice Moses said and once Joshua said, Today I lay before you good and evil, life and death. And that good and life is if you obey, and the evil and the death is if you disobey. That has not changed. Same thing. And it never changes. It never will change. Excellent points, everybody. Good stuff. All right, Revelation 12 through 14, that's when we are introduced to the bad guys in the story. You know, I've always looked at reading Revelation, and I was told this by, by some men who were helping me try to understand the book better. Uh, it's like watching a play. You got all this action going on. And you got all these different characters that are introduced. So we're introduced to the bad guys in the story in more detail in Revelation 12 through 14. We got the red dragon, who's the main bad guy, the devil. And then we got the two beasts, the sea beasts and the earth beasts and the harlot. And remember, signs and symbols, all this stuff is symbolic. It's symbolic of Satan and the people he, were, he was using at this time to try to wipe out the Lord's church, which was Rome and all the corrupt aspects of the Roman Empire. You know, today, the red dragon still remains. The devil's still busy. But he's, he's using different means. He's not, he's not using these particular beasts and, and harlots, but he's still using things, isn't he? He's still using immorality, isn't he? 
He's still using corrupt uh, uh, government power. He's still using, uh, you know, all the things we see on the media and, and social media and, and the people maybe we even associate with on a daily basis if we're not careful. The devil will use whatever he can to try to steal God's children away from him. That's all he cares about. And so we see what he's using at this time. These are the bad guys. Always re remember that, okay? And then, after introducing us to the characters, the bad guys, and telling us, you know, about what they're trying to do to the Lord's church at this time, God's judgment is un unleashed in the next four chapters. So God tells you these are the people who are trying to bring you down and bring my cause down, but I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do to these people. I will defeat them. Time for repentance is up. There is a lot of judgment language, Old Testament judgment language, that is used in these four chapters to describe God's judgment on the dragon and the two beasts and the harlot. For example, we find language like Revelation 14, 19, where it says the grapes will be gathered and thrown into the great wine press of the wrath of God. So that's what God's going to do to these enemies. Throw them into the great wine press of the wrath of God. That's just judgment. God using strong language, strong Old Testament judgment language to talk about I'm bringing these people down. They will not defeat me. We find language like seven bowls of the wrath of God. God's wrath being described as like being in a bowl, a big bowl, and it being poured out on its enemies. Do you want to be on the receiving end of God's wrath being poured out on you? Remember what the Hebrew writer said, it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of what? The living God. That's what's going on there. And then you got Armageddon. Okay? Don't get thrown off by, by what people, you may hear people saying today. This is not some battle to come in, the, into the, in our future. This is a battle to come into from the perspective of the early Christians' future. And it just represented the spiritual battle that was going on between God and Satan at this time. The spiritual forces that were fighting each other, Armageddon. But how long does the battle last? Not very long. Was there like wondering, okay, you know, who's going to win this? This could go either way here. Is that how it was? That's not how the Bible described Armageddon. How does the Bible describe this battle of Armageddon? It's over before it starts. It's not no, okay, let's just see. Oh, ooh, God took a few. Ooh, I don't know if God can pull this off. It's not how it was. It was nothing. Because Satan is nothing to God. He's tough for us. We can't beat him without God, but he'll never be able to defeat God. So, so that's, that's the idea of Armageddon there. And then regardless of how, you know, if, as you read this, as you read this section here, this is a difficult section. If you find yourself getting confused, like, oh, I can't remember exactly what that meant, or maybe we forgot to mention it in a class. Remember this, at least. Jesus wins. I may can't remember what this verse is all about and what this represented, what Sean said, what Mitch said. Maybe we didn't say anything about it. But at least know that Jesus wins. He wins. That's the point. That, that, that's the main thing you got to take away from that, Okay. So then we come to Revelation 18, 20. More details are given concerning the demise of these enemies. In these chapters, we find the enemies going down one by one. The harlot goes down. Then the earth beast and the sea beast go down. And then ultimately the red dragon. Where does he end up? Lake of fire. 
He ends up in the lake of fire. And anybody, let's, let's make this point. Anybody who is not with God is against God. Anybody who is not in God's army is in Satan's army. Anyone who's not in God's family is in Satan's family. So, those who are in allegiance with the devil, you know where they're going to end up when it's all said and done? With him. Does that make sense? And there's a list of, like, you got the cowards and the liars and all those people are going to end up with the devil and the, and the beast for forever. That's the end of Revelation 20. And then Revelation 21 through 22, won't go into details on that because Mitch did a wonderful job going through that. The final scene for God's people is painted. The beauty of heaven is revealed. Perfect fellowship with God is retained. Remember, Jesus said, in my father's house are many mansions, and I go to prepare a place for you. And where I go, I will come again and receive you to myself, so that where I am, you can be also. That's that promise being fulfilled right there. God's people are brought into heaven. The, the bad story or the, the bad scene that is described in the beginning of the Bible reaches a happy ending. In the beginning of the Bible, fellowship with God is lost. Remember, the Bible begins with Adam and Eve. They're in the garden, but they're in perfect fellowship with God. Remember, the Bible says that they're able to talk to God, and he's talking with them. And the Bible even says that God was walking in the garden with them. Remember that? They had perfect fellowship with God, but they lost that when they did what? When they sinned. We lost it too when we sinned, but in heaven it will be regained. God will walk among us again. God will speak with us directly again. We will be as close to God as possible again. The book of Revelation ends by letting us know that what was lost in the beginning is regained, and it's regained because of who? Jesus Christ. Mitch, some kind of way, I, well, Mitch left already. Where is he at? I did it some kind of way. I don't know how I did it, but I did it. So let's stop right there. On uh, Wednesday, we will uh, pick up, and I want to talk with you more about some application and give you some helpful study tools. Is that okay? We'll do that on Wednesday. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.